Let's begin by reading 2 Kings chapter 1. We're just going to read verses 2 through 4. This is a longer story, but I just want to read this section here. Now Ahaziah, who was the king, fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go, inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, you know him, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there's no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. So this is Ahaziah during the time of the divided kingdom where you had the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Ahaziah was the king of the northern kingdom. You see, he was there in Samaria. He gets injured, develops a sickness from it, and he wants to know if he's going to die or not. So he sends messengers to go inquire of Baalzebub. That is, in Hebrew, the Lord of the Flies. You ever wonder where the name of that book came from? It comes from this. The Lord of the Flies. Go ask the God of the Flies if I'm going to die. Not only that, but he's the God in Ekron, which if you know your Bible, was a Philistine city. So go to the Philistines and ask their fly God if I'm going to die. This God was also known as Lord of Dung, was another name for this God. He was a God of, of filth as you can see from the, the descriptions. And you think, who would worship that God? When I get us over there to Nepal, you will see, they do in fact worship all kinds of filth and disgusting things. And I, until I saw a Hindu culture firsthand in the temples and all the rest of it, I never understood the phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness, until that moment. I mean, they'll, they'll bow down and worship if, they, if they've got a, a holy bird that flies over the street and the bird poops on the street, they'll set up an idol and worship the poop in the middle of the street. So before we laugh too badly at these Philistines, it's still going on. But this is the God that the king of Israel wants to go find out if he's going to die. And maybe you can see the connection. God of filth, God of death. Maybe he knows if I'm going to die. And by the time we get to the New Testament, you know the name Beelzebub is going to be a stand-in for Satan himself. In Mark 3.22, they'll accuse Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the lord of the demons, right? Now, you see in the story, God was incredibly offended by this. He sends Elijah to strongly rebuke the king. And if you read the rest of this chapter, it's an interesting story. Elijah calls fire down from heaven twice on two regiments of soldiers that Ahaziah sends to arrest him. Until finally the third Captain of the soldiers has a white flag, basically, and says, please don't set us on fire and let us take you to the king. And he did, and Ahaziah did, in fact, die from this. And the question that Elijah was sent to ask is our focus today. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going somewhere else? King Ahaziah was the king of God's chosen people. They had seen him send ten plagues on Egypt and part the waters and provide for them in the wilderness and drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. They had the covenant promises of God where he said, if you serve me, I will bless you. But he decides to go to the Lord of the Flies. And you kind of heard it in the room. We were all kind of chuckling like, why in the world would you do that? This is what is called idolatry. Choosing to worship or seek assistance from anything other than God himself. And in most cases, especially in history, this involved a personal false god with a name and an image. 
And the words that the Bible uses for idols tell us about what God thinks about idolatry. The Greek word in the New Testament is idolon. And it's where we get the word idol from. And the word actually means shadow. It's, the, it's communicating insubstantialness. In the Hebrew, the word Avon does not mean idol, but a lot of times they would use the word Avon to describe these idols, and it means emptiness. So you get the same idea that there's nothing there. It's insubstantial. It's a shadow. It's empty. The people would go after what was lesser than God instead of God. And prohibition against idolatry was the hallmark of Israel. This is what set them apart from the other nations. We don't worship idols. We don't bow down to graven images. But they themselves had a serious problem throughout all their history of going after those false gods, didn't they? Even though that was like their thing. <laughs> we have one God and we don't worship images, except for when we do. And we ourselves are not bowing down to statues, I hope. If you are bowing down to an idol at home, stop it at once. Call 1-800-GOT-JUNK to come and haul it away. But we face the same temptation to look to other things for help when God is already there. It's like, is it because there's no God in Israel? Is it because there's no God in the church? Because there's no Holy Spirit living inside you that you're going to look somewhere else? And we're going to look at this in two different ways today. We're going to look, as this is normally taught, at the principles behind idolatry and how we can apply those to our lives. And those are profound and significant. But I also want to address this issue directly. And this is what got me thinking about this message in the first place. That Christians have a tendency to look outside of the church for their spirituality. They'll look to other religions. They'll look to other ideas. And it makes them feel very spiritual and scratches that itch in their soul that only God is supposed to satisfy. You saw in the book of Acts, did it strike you? It struck me when we studied through it, how common magic and demon possession and all that stuff was. Like, oh, this is actually kind of in here a lot. Remember the story in Acts 19 and then Ephesus where the, the demons attacked the sons of Sceva because he tried to use the name of Jesus and the name of Paul. And everyone's like, okay, this Paul guy and that Jesus, those are serious people. So all the Christians who had been keeping back their magic books and their magical practices came and burned them all publicly. It was a public repentance from this magical spiritual stuff they were trying to keep back. And that temptation of false spirituality hasn't gone away. You know this. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord says that he has blessed us with how many spiritual blessings? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So why do we need to, as we're going to say, borrow our spirituality? We only need to press deeper into the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we're going to learn today. Because folks today, and this is not unique to our time, you know, it's not like things were better back in the day. They weren't really, actually. Folks feel free to pick and choose their spirituality from any source they like. We've got a little Jesus, we've got a little Buddha, we've got a little Muhammad, a little bit of some atheist YouTuber I found online. And, you know, this is what makes me, me. And what is behind all of that is you don't really believe in any of it. It's all, it's equally real, it's equally not real, so just whatever makes me feel good. And we get frustrated by that because there are those that get mad at us for taking our religion so seriously. It's like, well, listen, I actually believe this. You know, doesn't that get frustrating, especially when you hear some politician talking about, well, I don't know why y'all can't just back off. It's like, well, because we think this is real. This isn't just a thing we do. But we're also complicit in what I was just describing. So for the instruction to 
avoid this stuff to make any sense, we've got to back up. We've got to remember what it is we believe. We've got to relearn some theology. Because God doesn't just warn us away from other gods and other things out of pettiness. It's like, no, you have to stay with me because only me and I'm God. That's not it. There's a real danger that the Bible warns us against. Why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? This is a longish passage, so it's worth turning to. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 14 through 22. Of course, Corinth was a Greek city, a Greco-Roman city. They had plenty of gods and plenty of idolatry. So Paul's writing to new believers in that culture. So here's what he writes to them in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 and following. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He's referring to communion here. Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So a longish passage. But understand what Paul is saying without diving too far into the details here. He's saying that when you worship something, there is a spiritual reality behind it. It's not just physical. It's not just, as he was addressing here, well, yeah, the union was having a meeting in the temple and we worshiped the God and then we ate the meat and, you know, I didn't really participate in it. But, I mean, idols aren't real anyway. And Paul's like, yeah, but there's a spiritual reality behind these things. And he's going to go on in that passage. He'll, he'll warn them against eating the meat that comes from the sacrifice. He's like, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to go and take the meat that's been sacrificed to Zeus or to Aphrodite and then bring that home? You're a Christian. What's the deal? And he'll go on later to explain to them, listen, guys, this doesn't mean you've got to be weird about it. If it's in the meat market, don't do it like a, a background check to find out where the meat came from. Because an idol is nothing. But at the same time, he's like, I don't want you to be participating in the worship of these things. Because although that God is not a God, there is a demonic spiritual reality behind it. Demons take advantage of idolatrous worship. That's old-fashioned thinking, isn't it? That is very old-fashioned. You say the word God, people are with you. You say the word Jesus, very respectable. You say the word angel, people go, okay. Say the word devil or demons, oh, give me a break. You believe in some red dude with a pitchfork? No, I believe in what the Bible calls the father of lies. It's biblical thinking. We don't just believe in God. We believe that there is a host of heaven, as the Bible calls it. The angels and the fallen angels or demons led by the devil or Satan himself. We believe this. You know the verses, Ephesians 6.12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual hosts of wickedness. The word host means what? Army. Spiritual armies of wickedness. Jesus confronted demons all the time as did the apostles in the book of Acts. The Old Testament is replete with stories of angels interacting with God's people, as is church history, by the way. There's probably a few people in here that have had experience with that kind of thing. 
More specifically, we read about what Paul calls those principalities and powers. Daniel 10 talks about the prince of of Babylon and the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece and the prince of Israel. These are spiritual ranks. He's like that these nations are not just nations of men. There are spiritual realities behind them. There are ranks of demons in rebellious rule. This is why false religion matters because other religions are not just other philosophies. And we always try as Americans to do the same thing to other religions that we do to our own, which is shave all the spiritual stuff off the sides of it until it's just something cute that you can post on your Instagram. You know what I mean? But there's something real there. Other religions are not just other ideas. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says that in the last days, people will give heed to doctrines of demons. We read last week about 1 John warning the church that just because somebody has a spiritual experience or a message from heaven doesn't mean it came from God because there are deceiving spirits that go out. So this is important theology for us to remember. Paul knew that in one sense, the sacrifice to the idol means nothing because it's just a, it's just a rock or it's just a big wooden statue. But he also knew that Satan uses that deception to get footholds in people's lives. Somebody makes a golden statue and says, this is my God, I'm going to worship it. So what does Satan do? Satan comes in and gives him some vivid dream or vision where he makes himself appear like that. I'm that God that you've been worshiping. Like, I knew he was real. Well, he's not. But there's a deceiver using that to take false worship and to bring destruction to someone's life. Have you ever noticed how bloody and violent all these idolatrous religions were and are? Or those that try to get into these weird spiritual transcendental practices. There's always some weird like suicidal, violent, bloody thing going on. That's what Satan does. He deceives people. That's Okay, so the primary reason we reject idolatry is first of all, Christ comes first. And the Lord will not share his glory. That's the first reason. That Jesus Christ is the one and only, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he deserves all of our worship. But the second reason is the Bible tells us that there's a spiritual reality and that there is spiritual danger behind these things. And that is not normal American thinking or Western thinking, I guess you could expand it out. Oh, don't take things so seriously. No, no, no. We take these things seriously. And I think we know all this. None of that is news to anybody, I don't think. But it's important to remember because what the world has done, at least in our day and age, they've decided they no longer officially believe in the spiritual. You ask somebody, do you believe in angels? Do you believe in demons? Do you believe in God? No. I don't think we could ever really know. Probably not. Therefore, what they have done is any religious or spiritual practice is fair game because there's nothing real behind it. So they start bringing in all these things that Paul said, yeah, there might be nothing there, but you got to watch out. Because I don't want you to be participants with demons. There's a real, subtle danger there. And now Israel knew this too, didn't they? So we know that there is a spiritual reality behind your worship. Which is why we serve the Lord God alone and not the usurping spirits. Israel knew that. And they never officially stopped worshiping the Lord. Doesn't that surprise you? That with all the mess Israel got into, they were still going to the temple. In the northern kingdom, they had idolatrous worship of the Lord. They had the two golden calves at Bethel. But it was still, as far as they were concerned, worship of the Lord. They continued to share God's glory. But they could always convince themselves, no, we're still servants of God. I still go to the temple. I still keep the Sabbath. I still keep the feasts. 
even though they would then go and worship all those other gods too. Read a passage here from Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 16 through 20. It opens it up with a shocking commandment from the Lord to Jeremiah. He said, as for you, do not pray for this people. What? <laughs> That's what he said. Do not lift up cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I do not hear you. Go, God, how could you say something like that? Well, listen to what he says as he continues. Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. The whole family's in on this idolatry. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. But do they spite me, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves that they spite to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. God's like, don't pray for these hypocrites. Do you see what they're doing? They go to the temple, but then they're also going to go home and they're going to bake cakes for the queen of heaven. Not quite sure what that is, but it's an offering. You can see you bake the cakes, you offer it up to the queen of heaven. God has no queen, so this is idolatry. They would pour out drink offerings to other gods. You'd take a, a cup full of wine or water, whatever it is, and you'd pour it out in honor of the God that you're worshiping. He's like, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? You're, you're bringing shame upon yourself. Most common example of this is what we see in the Old Testament, the high places. That before the temple was built, it was common to go up to the top of the mountains and worship God's there. Whatever God you wanted to worship, you could worship him there. But God says, you're going to come to Jerusalem. You're going to come to the temple because that's where my presence is. But the people continued to go and worship at the high places. And this is like a thorn in the flesh of Israel. And a good king. He did this. He delivered the nation out of that. He worshiped the Lord, but he didn't get rid of the high places. You would do Chronicles and Kings. It says that a lot. And I, I've defined a high place. If we're going to put it in our terms, it's a culturally acceptable compromise. I believe it was only Hezekiah and Josiah were the ones that finally took down the high places. I'm serving the Lord. I'm worshiping the Lord. Didn't Solomon have an experience at a high place where God asked him? The Lord's like, I'm not concerned with that. I'm asking you to come and worship at my house, at my temple. And of course, it wasn't just the Lord that would be worshiped there. You'd have people coming to worship Baal and worship Asherah and whatever God. And you kind of just got in line. It was very convenient but Israel had a very serious problem avoiding that snare. They never stopped worshiping the Lord, but for them it was culturally acceptable to worship many gods. And there were things that you just did. You didn't make a big deal out of it, but you made the cakes for the Queen of Heaven. You poured out a drink offering every once in a while. You go to the high places if you can't quite make it to Jerusalem. We do the same kinds of things. And I do mean in the capital C Church. Hope things aren't going on here. But Christians will worship pray, take communion, read their Bibles. But then they go home and they've introduced other forms of worship in compromise. And this attitude that I'm going to talk about here is not aggressive. Like, it's because I hate the Lord and I want to worship as many gods as possible. It's as nonchalant as it was for Israel. What's the big deal? We make cakes for the Queen of Heaven. The kids like it. Dad gets in on it. It's a nice family affair. We pour out the drink offering. It's just it's something that you do. We like going to the high places. What's the big deal? Same thing for us today. I don't think what I'm going to talk about here is people that are vicious. I think they're not taking it seriously enough. It's what you, you might call it. Some of y'all might know this term. Some of y'all might not. Do you know what it means to be called basic? 
This, this is a millennial term, so you've got to just work with me here. To be called basic is basically to, there's nothing unique or special about you. You do what everybody else does. You're just like everybody else. And you think you're very special, and you think that you're very unique, but you're like, oh, that is so basic. That's the problem. We think nothing of doing just like everybody else does. It's just what everybody else is into. You borrow your spirituality from other people. The examples that got me wanting to teach this message are, I've been very surprised to ha learn how many Christians permit some form of magic into their house. And I'm not talking about some TV show. I'm talking about the real deal. My brother and sister-in-law went to a friend's house who go to church. And they had an altar set up in their house with a spell book and things to make potions and everything else. And like, what is that? Oh, our family's always just, you know, had these things. You know, it's real when you're when you got headaches and things, you know, it's helpful. And, you know, that we we're talking, they were so freaked out. They were like, you're a pastor. Should we go back to that house? I'm like, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> My sister is a nurse at the University of South Carolina. And she says the amount of people that come in with crystals to try and heal their loved ones is astonishing. She actually had a nurse that she was supposed to be training who says, well, you know, I've got a bag of crystals we can use. She's like, you, you got a degree. What are you? <laughs> and it, it's, it's laughable, but I'm seriously, people come in and, well, if I put the, I put the special rocks here, here, and here, they're going to get better. What, you're trying to invoke some kind of power to accomplish something that would not be normally accomplished. There's a very big problem we, that we don't encounter here, but people who come, especially from like the Caribbean islands, like Haiti or Jamaica or places like that, where voodoo is so common, you bring it with you, and it, they have no problem blending that with the church. I'm not talking, as I said, about TV stuff. We, we have a weird thing where we get so upset over the, the appearance of certain things that we miss the reality of what's really going on. Consider some Christians' use of astrology. Hey, baby, what's your sign? Do you know that the Bible explicitly forbids you to do that? Like, explicitly comes out and tells you not to look to the stars to try and figure out your future. What's the big deal? It's just fun. There it is, you see? The amount of Buddhist practices that have made their way into the churches. Now, there was a big push for this a few years ago. The whole emergent church thing was actively trying to do this. That's kind of cooled off, thank the Lord. But I, I had a friend who hung prayer flags in his house. Well, you know, because it's, it's, it's very spiritual. I'm like, it's not Christian. Well, you know, as long as I'm praying to the Lord, it doesn't matter. Buddhist prayer is the this, this laziest thing you've ever seen. You spin the wheel. You spin the wheel, and the prayer is written on it, and every time it goes around, the prayer goes up. So when I was in Nepal, and I went to the, the shtupa, as it's called, they had these little things. They look like those, um, those things with a cup in the ball, and you try to catch it in. It's got a weight on the end, and you spin it like this, and every time it goes around, that's one prayer going up. And there are churches, there were churches in Lynchburg, Virginia, that had prayer wheels. And you write the Lord's Prayer on it, and you spin it. And it's like, what are you doing? There's kinds of weird transcendental meditation. You're like, you know, if you're not really feeling your prayer life with Jesus, have you tried, you know, crossing your legs and clearing your mind and saying Om real loud? You know that Om is a, is a Hindu phrase where the, the, the sounds represent the various elements of, of life or whatever. I'm not really too interested in it, honestly, but it's a very serious thing. Amen. Well, it's not a big deal. It just helps calm me down. There are other ways to calm down. In many cases, it's just an openness to the teachings and ideas of other religions. 
But you know, obviously, I, I don't believe the Koran, but there are some important things that has been said. What are you doing reading the Koran? Well, yes, I know that the, the Bhagavad Gita is written to Hindus and it's idolatrous, but you know, there are some very profound, wise things that we could apply in there. I've heard of churches that will have clerics from other religions come in and, and preach a message. And it's like, what can we learn from this group or that group? As I just read in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, this is not just other ideas. It's the doctrine of what? Demons. Well, that's so offensive. I, I'm not worried about being offensive. I'm worried about being true. What does the Bible say? Most common thing, I think, is when people will use drugs and alcohol to attain an altered state of mind. When I get high, I just I see things and I feel things and I can think through things so clearly. That's another thing that the Bible explicitly forbids you to do. The Greek word is pharmakia. What does that sound like? Pharmacy, as in drugs. When the Bible in the New Testament says sorcery, most of the time it's that word. Well, I'm no sorcerer. Well, are you doing drugs? So don't let nobody tell you the Bible never says we can't get high. It absolutely does. Why is that, by the way? Because, and, and people say, well, I'm just, I'm just getting high. There's nothing weird about it. Yeah, okay. Talk to them a little bit longer, and they'll start saying, yeah, man, and I, I saw angels, and I started to feel heaven, and I was outside my body. And the Lord is like, those things are a shortcut to spirituality. And what they do is they, they make your mind all loose and weird so that Satan, the deceiver, comes in and starts deceiving you. I found my spirit guide, man. He's leading me on. That is not something you want. Now listen, in some of these cases, some of these things, we, we can turn into like Joe McCarthy and we're trying to chase people down and, and say, are you doing this? That, you know, if you do that backwards and, and you play that CD sideways, that it's, it's actually devil worship. Like You can turn into that. Okay? That's not what we want to do. Paul would tell the Corinthians, if you don't know where the meat came from, it's not a big deal. But I don't want you going out and actively doing these things. So let me go ahead and use an example that a lot of people will get mad at me for. So, and I, because I think it's a good example of, of the, the meat market in, in Corinth. Yoga has been widely accepted and brought into American culture. Okay? Now, most people, when they think of yoga, they think, what? I'm stretching. I'm stretching. I'm twisting my back around. It helps me out. That's great. You should hear what Nanda has to say about yoga. Nanda is a, our Nepali friend, our pastor. And in, in, in India, to be a yogi is not just to get up and stretch weird in the morning, but there's a whole spiritual, worshipful prayer thing. All those shapes and things that are made are... They're ways of aligning your body with the spiritual world around you and, and encountering the gods and releasing your spirit. And Now, there's yoga and there's yoga in the United States. There's, hey, there's this weird stretch that if you do it, it really helps uncrack un your back and everything like that. But they say, well, listen, that, that's sort of a weird spiritual thing. People, no, 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 no. But you talk to them for a few minutes longer. And what do we get? Well, it just makes me so relaxed. And I open my mind and I become free and the heart chakras begin to release. And we play the music and I just feel one with Mother Earth and the energy is drawn. You see? It's like, well, that's just all silliness. But that's what it is. So listen. All these things that we, we bring in, we've got to be cautious about how we do them. And if we're going to do them at all. The saddest thing to me is that these same folks that do all these different things are often the last to come to a prayer meeting or worship 
with any kind of fervor or read their Bibles. To which I say, no wonder you feel empty. Well, I, I, I just don't experience anything in my worship with the Lord, so I, I'm going to go and, and, and see what Islam has to offer. It's like, well, how are, what do you do? Explain to me what you, well, I show up to church late and I leave early and then I don't think about God the rest of the week. Well, of course not. Of course you don't feel connected to the religion. There is a long, wondrous tradition of Christian spirituality that we tend to turn our nose up at. All, we see somebody that is really engaging in worship and loving the Lord and all we can do is start to nitpick the way they do it. We're like Michael when she made fun of David. Oh, look how the king of Israel has debased himself today. The Lord does not appreciate people who mock others' worship. But then what we do is we're, we're left high and dry. Some people will say it's actually better to have a dry relationship with God than an emotional one. How about we don't do either one of those things? How about we have a very thoughtful and doctrinal relationship with the Lord, but we also have a fervent and dynamic worship and prayer life? Take what you need from God rather than going somewhere else. You want peace? The Lord gives you peace. I just want to feel thoughtful and, and aware of the world. Well, Jesus taught us to do that. I want to know what the future says. The Lord is the one who knows the future. I need to be healed. The Lord is your healer. Psalm 103 verse 2 says, Do not forget all his benefits. You know them, but don't forget them. But all these things, it's cultural, so we don't feel weird about doing some of these things. It's non-demanding, right? It's spirituality that asks nothing of you. You don't have any kind of moral obligation to live up to. And it's also deceptive. So we start to tolerate what's normal in our worship, just like Israel. God would often compare that to spiritual harlotry. He's like, I'm your God and you're cheating on me. Doesn't God deserve all of you, Ahaziah? Is it because there's no God in Israel that you've got to go somewhere else for all this stuff? Not only that, but you've got a deceiving spirit who's out to destroy your soul and who wants to ground your spiritual life in something other than the Holy Spirit of God, where all your spiritual needs are met outside of Jesus Christ, to where now all of your love and your affection is being drawn away after these things. Now, whether I mentioned your example here or not, evaluate your life. Say, am I diving deep into the well of Jesus or am I borrowing my spirituality from somebody else? Oh, that... that that philosopher, he just, he understands life. Oh, the way that, that that TV show just portrays reality just really gets to me. And that's how I want to think and be. And that's how you're supposed to be thinking about the Lord and his word and his truth. And if you feel like you're dry as a bone spiritually, come talk to me. We'll work it out. Right? I'm your pastor. I'm your shepherd. I'm supposed to help you with that stuff. Come to the prayer meetings on Sunday nights. Come pray. If you're feeling dry spiritually, come and pray with the church. Open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. The Lord has plenty of amazing things for you without you having to go somewhere else. Now, you might be sitting here today thinking, ha yeah, but I'm too clever to do any of that. I'm too spiritual and righteous to do any of those things. I'm glad you're preaching so boldly, Tyler. These people need to hear that. <laughs> louder. Do it louder and stronger. Listen, I hope that you're not doing any of that weird stuff. But don't check out yet. Because idolatry is going to someone or something else for something that God has promised to give you. This is something we've all got to look out for. When we elevate something above the Lord and give it God's place in our lives. In the olden days, people would give names and faces to those things. And they would bow down to their statues. Now today, we've kind of dispensed with the name. We're not going to bow down to Thor or Zeus or Venus. But we're still going to commit the same sin in our spirit that those idols represented. 
I ought to mention, though, by the way, that there is always a temptation to return to that idolatry. Hitler appointed as the head of the German church a neo-pagan who was actively trying to return the German people to the ancient gods that they used to worship. When a missions team from Lynchburg went over to England, they were talking to people on the streets, and a whole bunch of them were like, it's time to be done with this Jesus and, and get back to Odin and get back to Thor and get back to our cultural heritage. So while we're saying that that doesn't really happen anymore, you've got to look out because it's always trying to make a return. But even a regime like, like Stalin's Russia, attempting to eradicate every form of religion, it's so obviously demonic that it's like you don't have an idol, but you don't need one to be idolatrous. So let's take a minute, and we're going to run through these pretty quickly. We're going to look at some of the false gods that we read about in Scripture and what they represented. And I, I hope that you'll see that you might be an unconscious sympathizer with that idolatry, even if you're not actively doing it on purpose. So we're going to go quickly, but I'm going to have it up on the screen so you can write them down if you want. In the Bible, there was the, the God we all remember who is Baal. Actually, you'd pronounce that Baal. There's an apostrophe there. The name just means Lord. This is why there's one point where God said, stop calling me Baal. Because <laughs> he's like, I know it just means Lord, but it also refers to that God and we're not the same thing. So please stop. He was a weather God. He was a fertility God. He controlled thunder. He controlled lightning and rain. Probably blended with the Greco-Roman version of those same gods. The God of power and control. Are there people who worship power today? Whether you're scheming to take public office or you're just trying to gain an advantage over other people at work. You ever go to, let's pick on the DMV, and you meet somebody or at a drive through window who is very obviously going out of their way to make you miserable? I'm not talking about things are slow and I'm very, very sorry, but somebody who is reveling in the little tiny bit of power they've got over you. You ever have a boss like that? <laughs> Parents can be this way. Lovers can be this way to each other. It's the same thing. Because we think power, we think king. Well, I'm not a king, so I'm not susceptible to this. Yeah, right. There are certain people that I'm glad that God has made them have no power, because if they had a lot of power, we'd be in serious trouble. But a Christian realizes power belongs to the Lord himself. And your power as a Christian comes from his Holy Spirit. It keeps you from sinful ambition, because you know that God's the one in control. It keeps you from presumption, because you're not going to step, step out ahead of the Lord. Secondly, there was the goddess Asherah, or you might see sometimes in the Bible the word Ashtaroth. Oath is the feminine plural in Hebrew, so the Asherahs, plural. This was a female fertility goddess. You read in the Bible about Asherah poles. They would carve these things like totem poles that you've seen in uh, some of the American Indian cultures. But they would carve them with these lewd sexual pictures in order to stimulate lust when you came to worship. There were the groves, the Asherah groves that you read about, where you would go and you would copulate with the priestesses. You would go have sex with the prostitutes of this goddess in order to worship her. The goddess of sex and lust. Are we not worshipers of that today? Our demand to be as free with our sexuality as we like? We should be able to do whatever we want, as long as we both want to. It's like, that's a terrible reason to do anything. The pervasiveness of pornography, we really haven't changed much, have we? But a Christian acknowledges God's design sexually as a positive good. It's not just do whatever you want, but that there is a good way to do this. The Bible tells us to keep the marriage bed undefiled. 
That we receive the fulfillment that the world is seeking, but we receive it apart from the guilt that comes from promiscuity and the baggage that comes along with it. Number three is the god Molech. Molech was a god that they would worship in the valleys. They would make these giant statues with these outstretched arms and they would set a fire in the belly of this idol so that it would heat up really, really hot. And then they would take their infants and their children and they would put them on top of the altar so that they would burn up. It was called making your child pass through the fire. And they would have loud, boisterous, frantic worship to drown out the screams of the children. Molech is, you could say, the god of convenience. The god of, I have a responsibility, but I'm going to abdicate that responsibility because it would mess with my life. We worship convenience today. We, we were talking about the Crisis Pregnancy Center this morning. That abortion, we're still getting rid of our kids if we don't want them. I'm not trying to be flippant about it. I know that sometimes it's a very difficult situation. But we're trying to avoid hardship. Or we try to avoid our family because if I'm home with my family spending the appropriate amount of time, I'll never get that promotion, so I'm going to sacrifice them on the altar of convenience. Or the church. Or our health. The Bible tells you to take good care of yourself. And you run yourself into the ground because you're chasing something else. A Christian never runs from responsibility. We recognize that life is hard and that sometimes we mess up and we are left with something that we're going to have to deal with the rest of our lives. But we also know that God is good. That he supplies all of our needs. So we don't have to be afraid of that, but we have a God who supplies all of our strength to move forward. Number four, in the New Testament, we read about a God named Mammon, whom Jesus said, you cannot serve God and Mammon. Remember that? That's the Aramaic word for the lust for money. We don't know very much about this God specifically, but scholars relate him to the Greek God Plutus, the God of wealth. You may have heard of a plutocracy, right? Ruled by the people with money. It comes from this God. The God of gain. I don't think anybody disputes that we worship money today. Even for all our moralizing. Isn't it hilarious that somebody will have like a billion dollar book deal pointing the finger at billionaires? Or the politicians that want to come out and talk about how we're going to get the rich in line. And then they go home to like their ten houses and four yachts. (laughs) But even if you don't have a lot of money, we're all willing to scrape for the quick buck. We're all willing to do whatever is needed. Even if we have Anything we could possibly want, we're still going to gripe and complain because we don't have as much as the next guy. A Christian sees money as an object. It's a tool. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. You work hard to earn what you make, but you're never mastered by it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because you're not the provider for your life. God is. And God is your only master. And fifth, well, this is not a specifically named God in Scripture. We see people worshiping the stars, the host of heaven, Trying to find out what was going to happen. Trying to elevate their minds to be like the gods. You could call this the god of knowledge. We worship knowledge today. You might not even think of that as a problem. But our desires to know and control everything leads to terrible tyranny and perversion because you remove all kinds of morality away from chasing knowledge and the the means that you use to pursue it. There's a, there's a geeky side of me, so I can use this illustration. Back in the day, science fiction used to be warning about if we get all this stuff and we gain all this knowledge, but we don't also grow morally along with it, we're going to be in serious trouble. We sort of dispensed with that. Now the villains of all the science fiction are the people that are trying to warn everybody about the morality. Knowledge for its own sake is worth it. Now we know how to blow up the world. How are we going to deal with that? 
Now we know how to kill babies in the womb. How are we going to handle that? You end up like the concentration camps where they were doing experiments on Jews for science. They finally get to serve a higher purpose, they would say. Now, a Christian desires to know. We desire, though, first to know God. Because he knows everything. We recognize that certain things are beyond us and that the secret mysteries belong to the Lord for good reason. We have a hierarchy of value for knowledge. There are certain things that we don't need to experience and understand. So there's five examples. Power, lust, convenience, money, knowledge. But there's countless more. Violence, death, nature, art, anything pursued to the exclusion of God himself. 1 John chapter 2, he told us, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So evaluate your life. What is the most important thing for you? It doesn't matter if it has some value. That's the problem. Well, there's some good to this. Yeah, there is some good to money. But are you mastered by money? Yeah, there is some good to knowledge. A lot of good to knowledge. But have you chased that down to the at the expense of other things, or pleasure, or power. The Lord has already blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So why do we want to go to the Lord of the flies to gain knowledge, or pleasure, or power? Whether your God has a name or not, or whether there's a distinct practice or not, idolatry stains your soul, and it separates you from Jesus Christ. You're not going to lose your salvation necessarily, but... You're going to be separated from the one who bought you and filled you up with his Holy Spirit. You're going to defile the temple of God. Why would you do that? And that's really the ultimate point today. The question that Elijah asked. If you have God in your corner, why do you want other things? Why do you want to go somewhere else? A lot of times, and this wasn't even in my notes, we're chasing aesthetics. Oh, the music is so good. Oh, it's such a slick presentation. Oh, it makes me feel so good. I love the turn of phrase they use. Very, very poor reasons. To abandon the Lord. But let me tell you a story. Let's, let's, let's bring it back a little bit here and end on a positive note. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, you have this story. It says, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Isn't it a bummer when your God falls over? <laughs> but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord again. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the household of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. Dagon was another Philistine god, half man, half fish, looked like a giant mermaid. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant into his temple. Now we've got two gods. The next morning, the idol of Dagon is bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. And they say, oh, whoopsie-daisy, Dagon, let's get you back up. And the next morning, he's fallen over. Now his head and his hands are busted off. And then the Lord afflicts them all with a plague of cancer. And they say, you know what? Maybe we should get rid of this thing. Because this is, this is serious stuff. 
And also in another passage that God sent them a plague of rats too. All the plagues, a plague of rats. It's nothing I really want. And they, they put it on a cart and sent it back to Israel. Like, we're not going to touch it. Well, let's let, hopefully the cow will just take it back. The Lord was constantly asserting his own power against the false idols. And I love these stories. We see it in the book of Exodus over and over again. Exodus 12, 12, God said, I'm going to smite not just Egypt, but the gods of Egypt. Every single one of those plagues was showing up one of the gods that Egypt worshipped. The Nile River, the frogs, the, dark, the sun that they worshipped, right? The cattle that they worshipped, death itself. And the Lord's like, I'm going to step in and show you who's boss. What about when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18? We'll make an altar and whoever God calls down fire from heaven is the real God. And they spend all day weeping and wailing and cutting themselves and nothing happens. He goes, dump tons of water on the altar first. Okay, Lord, would you please send fire? Vroom! And the Lord showed himself who was really God. We see verses like Isaiah 46.1 where he runs through this list of gods. He says, Baal bows down. Nebo stoops down before me. Isaiah 25.8, the Lord said, I will swallow up death. The, the Canaanite god of death was named Mote. He was called the great swallower who would swallow up everybody. And God's like, yeah, well, I'm going to show up and swallow up you. Isaiah 44 has this long extended passage where he makes fun of people who make idols. He's like, it's wood. You burn half of it in the fire. You cook with the other, half, other part. And then, okay, I've got some left. Let's make a god out of it. And we'll bow down and worship it. Psalm 135 talks about the idols that have eyes but can't see and ears but can't hear. And he says, and those who worship them become just like them. God's always been greater than these gods because he created the world. He even created those false demons that are trying to usurp his power. It's not a competition between Satan and God. You know that, don't you? It's a wipeout. You know how they try to make every matchup, every boxing match is the fight of the century? You know, everybody knows good and well what's going to happen as soon as it starts. Every football game... It's like, no, this one, this is the game because it's Monday Night Football. We've got to get people to watch. And it's like, no, they're, they're going to get plastered. Same thing with the Lord and the devil. Only the mercy of God to his creation gives him any kind of leeway because the Lord loves you so much that he's trying to reach out and save you. But not only that, Jesus Christ already won the great victory over Satan, didn't he? He tried to destroy Jesus on the cross, but that turned out to be your victory and mine. Colossians 2.15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan's only power comes from his ability to tempt people to sin, which leads their lives to ruin and their eternity to hell. But Jesus Christ has provided a way of escape from all that. So there's no more sting left in death, as it says. You no longer have any obligation to obey the temptations of Satan. Aren't you glad? The only strongholds he gains are the ones that you give him, which is why we avoid idolatry, by the way. A lot of times Christians are like, I just can't do this anymore. And you talk a little bit and like, yeah, well, I've got this thing that I've refused to give over to Jesus. Well, Satan is going to hold on to that. It's his beachhead in your life. And it's going to keep you from fully entering into the abundant life Christ has promised. You've got to give it over to the Lord and get him out of there. The problem is a lot of times we want Satan's influence gone, but we don't want to get rid of the thing that opened up influence in the first place. God has liberated you from any spiritual authority other than his. So why would you go to the Lord of the flies? One day you're going to be taken to heaven to live forever. And the destination of the devil, according to Matthew 25, 41, is everlasting fire. God made hell for Satan and his angels. So why, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10, why do you want to mess with that? 
In Christ Jesus, you have the forgiveness of sins. You have joy. You have peace. You have hope. You have power for life and for ministry. You have spiritual gifts, including things like healing and prophecy and encouragement. You have a family here in the church. You have the inerrant word in your lap. You have the freedom that worship brings you and promised answers to prayer. You have the knowledge of the true and living God. So let me ask, what else do you need? Is Satan going to show up with his peddler's wagon and let you know there's a few things that God hasn't promised you? That's when you turn back and you say Ephesians chapter 1. Every spiritual blessing. So unless you have something other than every spiritual blessing, no thank you. And I realize that most folks that pursue other things don't do this consciously, but that's just the problem. I'm talking about these things actively because most of the time the problem is passive. We're like Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. Go get those golden cups that we got from Jerusalem and we'll, we'll drink them at my, at my party. We'll get drunk and we'll praise the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone. And then the finger of God comes in and begins to write on the wall, right? And it says that Belshazzar was afraid and his knees knocked together. He wasn't thinking about God. He wasn't thinking, let's really show that Hebrew God who's boss. He wasn't thinking. He just did it. And that's the problem. I'm trying today to awaken a God consciousness in you. To evaluate your behavior and your thought patterns through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of the Gospel rather than just doing the things. Because as Paul explained in 1 Corinthians, as the Lord told the children of Israel over and over again, what is normal is not always what is right. Amen. So you've got to evaluate these things. Recognize what Paul said to the Corinthians. There is a spiritual dimension to the things that you do. And you should do everything to the honor of God. Which should be an encouragement to you. Because you've got the one that wins at the end. There's a song by a punk band that I used to like. And they had this one, it was like an Iraq war protest song. But the opening line was, My God is better than yours. And they were railing against the Muslims and Christians fighting each other and stuff. And it's like, well, no, actually, yeah, my God is better than yours. Because my God is the only God who is a God. He's the only one with a capital G. So why would we want to go somewhere else? Well, I just really appreciate what this brings. How about you spend a little more time appreciating what God has given you in Christ? Well, I get benefits from these other things. But have you forgotten the Lord's benefits? Jesus said, whoever comes after me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Don't borrow your spirituality from a foreign source. Delight in the truth of the gospel. If you're this deep, go this deep. If you're that deep, go farther. There is a bottomless well in Jesus Christ that you do not need to look to somebody else. Learn to live in the blessings that are yours in the name of Jesus. And don't go looking as if there was no God in your life. 